0: I am beyond blessed to be able to preach the first sermon of the first Sunday morning service in this place to you today. And it is, it is a good thing for us to go to the Lord again in prayer before we do that. So let's pray. God, we are here because you have sent us. Five years ago and even before that, you called a group of people to a place Because there are people in this place that do not worship you. And you are completely worthy of their worship. And so, Father, we are here in this building. Because there are still, after five years, people that do not know you. God, would you bring them to yourself? Father, my prayer today as we open your word together to see what you have to say to us, Lord, is that the lines of that song would be true. You are my everything, and I will adore you. Father, would you bring every person in Shepherdsville and Bullock County to a place where they are able to say that in truth, that you are their everything, that there is nothing in this world that we look to for pleasure, for security, for happiness, but only to you. And we will only receive that after a little while of pain and suffering and hunger and poverty. Oh God, help me preach today as a dying man to dying men. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have a Bible with you um, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the seat in front of you under the little thing somewhere. So just look under there, feel around. If you get some gum, sorry. Um, But, uh, Uh, We are in Luke chapter 6 today, so open up to Luke chapter 6, or if you have a uh, phone, you can poke your way along to Luke chapter 6, and that's where we're going to be. So we have a lot of visitors with us today, uh, a lot of people that maybe you've been out for a little bit and haven't been able to come and be with us on Sunday mornings. So let me just give you a quick recap of where we are and what we're doing, okay? So... For the last several, I don't know if it's months now, I guess, we've been going through the book of Luke. Uh, We've said, uh, hey, in the five years that Mercy Hill's been around meeting, we have never had a chance uh, to sit down and go through one of what the uh, theologians call a gospel, which is one of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are the books that contain the story of the life of Jesus. And so we wanted to go through one of these, and now we happen to be in Luke chapter 6. And at the beginning of the book of Luke, if you want to turn there real quick, at Luke chapter 1, there's a little paragraph where the guy who put this book together, whose name is Luke, he addresses the person that he wrote this for. And he's, his, this guy's name is Theophilus. And in verse 4, he tells Theophilus that he says that he has written this for him, most excellent Theophilus, and at verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Most of you in this room, I'm assuming, have been told certain things about Jesus at some point in your life. You've been told that Jesus is this. You've been told Jesus is that. Well, the reason that we have the book of Luke is so that we can know with certainty who Jesus was and what he taught us and what he actually said. And so that's why we're going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, section by section, the book of Luke. And today, we have the honor of looking at Luke chapter 6. So... In Luke chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 17. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So let's pause here for just a second. A little bit of more in specific context of what we're doing. If you were here the last couple of weeks, you might remember that uh, we looked at Jesus, uh, went up onto this mountain to pray. And as part of that, Jesus uh, called his disciples to him. There's a, a larger group of disciples at this point, And that is where he called the 12 disciples that we refer to as apostles. And he called his 12 apostles, these men that he would appoint and that would have the special task of being witnesses to all that Jesus said and all that Jesus taught and all that he did. And he's called them now, and so he comes down to this level place where there's, he's with his 12 now, he's with the larger group of disciples, and it says there's a great multitude that's with him. And he's on kind of like this flat part of this mountain, and he's got all these people around him, they're wanting to learn from him, they're wanting to be healed by him. Uh, What we have here in this section of the book of Luke all the way to the end of chapter 6 is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. You might have heard of that before. If you've been here for a while, we just did a series not that long ago on the Sermon on the Mount. Well, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And so over the next several weeks, you're going to hear some things that that are familiar, but they've got a different twist to them at times. And that's true of today. The Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew that starts in Matthew chapter 5 starts with the same passage this does. It's a passage called the Beatitudes. Where Jesus says, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are you. And so you might have heard these before and be familiar to you. But that's what we're looking at today. So let's go ahead and, and dive into these. And starting in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you, Who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Before we really do dive into these different Beatitudes, and then there's a section of woes there at the end, before we dive into those, there's two things that you need to notice before we do that that is going to help you have this uh, interpretive framework to know how to read these Beatitudes and to know what Jesus is teaching us. You might have already noticed these because they're pretty obvious, but just in case... First is this, is that there is a list of beatitudes and a list of woes, a list of blessings and almost a list of curses, so to speak. But there's four statements in each one, and they parallel contrast one another. So he says, blessed are the poor, versus woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry, woe to The full, all right? So they contrast one another. They are directly contrasting each other. But it's not just that. Notice, too, that there is a sense of time, almost of delayed gratification in these. So, for instance, uh, where it says in verse 21, he says, Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. There's this sense of something that is happening to you right now or something you are experiencing right now is going to have an impact. It's going to determine something about your future. And so as we're coming to these Beatitudes, here's what we can know. A very simple way of understanding what it is Jesus is trying to teach as he's saying this is this. He is saying that there are two ways for you to live your life. And whichever way you choose will have an impact on your future. I'll say it again. There are two ways to live your life. And whichever way you choose to live your life, it's going to impact your your future. Specifically, your eternity. And so, knowing that, using that framework to read each of these beatitudes and woes, let's start going through these together. So, let's, let's start right there in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. In contrast to what he says in verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now before we really do this here, before I start explaining that, I know I said before I do this, before I do that, I'm starting to sound like a Baptist preacher, aren't I? Um, But understand this, there's a caveat here. When he says... There in verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That word for right there, you can almost replace it with because. It's it's explaining why the previous statement is true. It's saying for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So what that is important is because this, you're not blessed just because you're poor. You're not blessed just because you don't have any money. You're not blessed just because you don't have material possessions. You're not blessed just because you're homeless. That's not what makes you blessed. What makes you blessed is the next statement. It's a combination of the two things. It is the fact that yours is the kingdom of God. At the same time, you're not in a state of woe just because you're rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing evil about being rich. And you're not in in a state of condemnation just because you have material possessions or just because you have a large 401k or just because you have the opportunity to experience a lot of great things in life that are luxuries. That doesn't make you condemned by God. That's not what this means. And the same thing goes for every single one of the Beatitudes and every single one of the woes. You're not blessed because you're starving And you're not blessed because your makeup is always ruined from your tears. That's not why you're blessed. It's because of the condition of your heart. It's because of where your citizenship is in heaven. You're not blessed because you're poor. You're blessed because of the reason that you're poor. Remember who it is that Jesus is talking to in this instance. It says in verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on who? On his disciples, on his followers. Earlier in Luke, in chapter 5, uh, we had the opportunity to see Jesus call some of his first disciples, some of his first followers. In chapter 5, verse 11, uh, Jesus is calling calling uh, his, some of his first disciples. These specifically were James and John. And in verse 11, when it says, after Jesus had called them, here is their reaction in verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. If you go down a little bit farther and you see in verse 27, Jesus is calling another one of his disciples, this guy Levi, who is sitting at the tax collector's booth. We did this just a couple of weeks. In verse 27, after he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, he said to him, follow me. Jesus has placed a call on this man's life. Follow me. Be my disciple. And his response was, in verse 28, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. The disciples of Jesus were literally poor. They had no job. They had no money. They had no place to stay. They traveled with Jesus, and they were completely reliant on what he could provide to them in this time. So when he says, blessed are you who are poor, he is saying, blessed are you that have chosen to follow me, and therefore, because of your decision to follow me, you are poor. You have given up the pleasures of this world and they are no longer what controls the path of your life. You are no longer seeking riches. You're no longer seeking a career track that's going to get you to a place where you can make a lot of money. You are no longer wrapped up in this world that tells you that your value can be had in the material possessions, in the toys that you have to play with, in the experiences that you can have in this life. But you have chosen a life of poverty to come And to follow me. And so here's our challenge. Because you you know that the same call on those men's lives to follow Jesus is the call that's on your life. So does this mean that you have to sell everything that you have? That you have to lose your career and your jobs? That you have to give up your 401k? Does that mean that you have to do all of that to follow Jesus? The answer to that question is no, it doesn't. It's not what that means. So what does it mean for us? How can we get to be in this same state of blessing to be poor? You see, to follow Jesus, like I already said, it doesn't mean that you sell everything that you have for all. Some of you, yes, it does mean that. Some of you, it does mean that you give up everything in your life, literally everything, and you move to a foreign country to tell other people about the Lord that don't know him. Some of you, it might mean that you move to a different state. Some of you, it might mean that you actually do change careers so that the job that you have can be more effective at reaching lost people. You might realize that the job you have now keeps you away from from lost people and you want to have a bigger impact. And so to do that, you step out in faith and you lose your job and you take a job so that you can do that. Some of you, it might mean that you start staying at home with your kids so that you can have a greater influence and impact on your children and train them up in the way the Lord would have them trained up. And so following Jesus and stepping into a life of poverty doesn't mean that you sell everything, doesn't mean that you clear out your bank account, but here's what it does mean. It does mean that there should be some kind of economic impact in your life. Your life is no longer about the pursuit of possessions. Your life is no longer about racking up as much money as you can. Your life is no longer about maintaining a certain lifestyle that your family enjoys Because all of those things will take you away from the ministry of reconciliation that God has called you to. Jesus says you cannot serve God in money. To be a follower of Jesus is to be called into the ministry of reconciliation, telling other people about him. And if your life is wrapped up in the busyness of life to maintain a certain lifestyle that you enjoy, you are living in sin. Because you're not following Christ. You're not doing what he would have you do in reaching the lost. So what is the measure here? Because this is so gray. This is such a gray area. What do you do? What's the formula? Should I, should I not have over this much in my 401k? Should I only work this many hours a week? Should I spend this much time with my kids? The Bible doesn't say things like that. There's no clear answer. But what it does say is there's a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that gives us some good insight. And so you can turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, starting in verse 6. It says this, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I want you to notice something here. He only lists two things that it would take for him to be content. Food and clothing. Everything else in your life is a luxury. And look, you live in the United States of America. We are an extremely wealthy nation. If you have more than food and clothing, you're rich. We can compare ourselves all day and say, well, Scott, compared to some people in this place, I'm not rich. Compared to other people in the world, I'm not rich. I don't have millions of dollars in my bank account. Well, guess what? That doesn't make you rich. Wealth is not always found in your bank account. You can, did you know that you can look like you have a very wealthy lifestyle in the United States of America, but have no money? It's called debt. You can can do anything you can to play the part of a rich person. You can do so many things to make yourself look rich and like you've got everything together, but you're not. You're poor. You have no money because everything you have has been borrowed. But the reality of your life is what he says here. You came into this world naked and you're going to leave naked. Anything else that you have in your life is a farce. It's a charade. It's going to be gone. And so if you place value in those things, you are going to be disappointed. And as the woe says, woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. You've received your happiness. But blessed are you who are poor. The reason for your blessing is not because of the things you have in this world. It's because of the riches that await you in the next Because you might have nothing here, but you are a child of the kingdom of God. And that is where your wealth is. That is where your value is. That is where you have placed your hope. Not in the things that are here, but in the things in the next world. Oh God, be my everything. Be my delight. The second beatitude. He says this. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Verses, in verse 25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. The idea of hunger communicates a person who is going without, who has a desire, but they are not able to obtain that desire, either because they're poor or because they are choosing to not indulge in this desire. They are choosing to forego that. But the nature of a person who is full is a person that is always constantly gratifying every desire that they have, whether it's food, whether it's buying a new toy, whether it's having a certain experience, an idea pops into your head, and boom, there's the desire, and so you jump at that, and you fulfill that desire. For you to always be full means that you never feel hunger, or at least for very long, because as soon as the desire comes, you feel it. So I have a confession to make. On Friday, I was running around town doing some work. My family knows exactly what I'm about to say. Um, and I was doing some work around town trying to get some things done up here and, and then going there. And so it was about 3 o'clock. And I was hungry. I had a salad for lunch, guys. And uh, I was hungry. Yeah. Mm, all right. Yum. And uh, and so I, had a, I do try. OK, uh, so I had a salad for lunch, but I completely undid my salad because at three o'clock I'm like, man, I'm hungry. I don't got to get Nolan yet. Maybe I can go do this or go do that. And so I uh, I, I caved. I went to Bojangles. I, I went and I got me some Bojangles. And I tell you what, it was probably the most disappointing Bojangles I've ever had. Uh, it, it tasted like the fries and the chicken had been sitting there since noon. I'm not even joking, man. It's like cardboard fries and shrivelled up you know chicken supremes, and uh, the sauce just wasn't even there. It was so off, but I was full. and so uh, but it wasn't long after that I get a text message from my mom uh, who's sitting over there and says, "Hey, we're going to Aspen Creek for dinner. You want to come? And I was like, "Sure." <laughs> absolutely. And so I went and I was looking at the menu and she's sitting here talking about all these things that are good and like, yeah, this is good. You're going to love that. I was this. I was like, okay. And so I saw this, this thing on the menu. It's this jerk chicken pasta that, uh, that she says, oh yeah, that's real good. It's got a kick to it. It's got some jalapenos in it. You'll like it. And so of course I get it. And they, man, they bring this thing out. It's on this giant plate of pasta that's amazing and a good portion size for not a ton of money, which is my favorite kind of restaurant. Amen. And, um, and they come out and man, I take like 10 bites of this thing and I say, man, I'm full. And my grandma looks across from me and says, are you sick? <laughs> and uh, not even joking, you can ask her. She's right there. And uh, she says, are you sick? And I just go, no, I'm full. And then Alicia goes, so what have you had to eat? <laughs> and I, I confess my, my, my failure of controlling myself. I have it Bojangles. And so look, here's the deal. In your life, you have constantly got these desires that you're feeling. That are coming at you, and you have a choice to make. You can choose to take the quick road and gratify those desires now and never be hungry in your life, or you can choose to suffer for a short while and feel hunger so that you can enjoy the feast later. That's the choice you have facing you in this beatitude. You can choose to indulge in your desires now, or you can feast later. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And it says in verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Christian life, the life that is spent following Jesus is a life where you are constantly picking up your cross and denying yourself. Deny yourself the fleeting pleasures of this life, the hunger that nags at you constantly to fulfill what you want to do. To buy the things that you just feel like you can't go without. You walk by and you're like, i got to have that. No, you don't. Forgo that desire because if you live your life constantly filling all these desires, guess what? When the true feast comes, you're going to be too full to enjoy it. Live hungry so that you can feast on Christ. The third beatitude Says this, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Over and against what he says in the woe Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Some of the opening words of the Declaration of Independence read like this We hold these truths to be self evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our founding fathers believed that it was the right of every single person to pursue what makes you happy. That is a very dangerous way to live your life. Sounds very anti-American, doesn't it? To quote the Declaration of Independence and say, if you live your life by this You're in a very dangerous place. Let me explain why. If you live your life with the intended goal to be happy, always, and if you look at your life and you say, well, this thing right here makes me happy, so that means it must be good, and this thing over here makes me sad, so therefore it must be bad, here's what you're going to do. At the first sign of trouble in your marriage, you're going to jump ship. Because it's not worth going through the pain. It's not worth the weeping. It's not worth feeling these difficulties and these hardships. And you want to be happy, so you leave. If you're living your life constantly seeking happiness and joy in the moments of your life, you are never going to have the difficult conversation with the person that you love that is slowly wandering into destruction. Because that's going to be a hard conversation. Because there's going to be hard tears and there's going to be sorrow and sadness. And that won't bring you this momentary happiness that you're seeking after. Because to have that conversation, they're probably going to get mad at you. You're probably going to be sad and upset. You're going to have to risk that relationship. We look on men and women in history that have done great things. And we try and we say that we want to model our life after those people. And like, man, if I could just be like that person. Or you say like, man, I want to change the world like that person did. Look, you ain't going to change the world if you're not willing to suffer through stuff. You're not going to change nothing. If you want to change the world like Jesus has actually called us to do, you've got to be willing to weep. And you've got to be willing to experience temporary sadness and mourning because laughter is what comes later. Joy is what comes later. In the book of James, chapter 1, he speaks to this this theme in verse 2 when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers. Joy! Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing when pain and sorrow come your way lean into it that's how you will mature Romans chapter 8 verse 18 Paul says this glorious phrase he says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us You suffer now because later glory is coming. You suffer now because the payoff and the laughter and the joy is later. But you've got to be willing to suffer through that. The last beatitude in verse 22. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. "...and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets." But then conversely, he says in verse 26, "...woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." This this verse helps us reinforce the idea that, look, you're not blessed just because you're a jerk. Because he says that you are blessed when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil. Why? On account of the Son of Man. This isn't because you're just a jerk. This is because they are persecuting you because you are a follower of Christ. There is something about your following Jesus that leads other people to hate you. A lot of the things that we do in our life we do because we want to be liked by other people. We dress the way we do because we want to be seen in a certain light, to be liked by a certain group. That's where there's different styles of dress. And don't tell me it's because it's comfortable for you. Um, I know it's not comfortable for you to uh, I, don't th- I don't know if anybody here does this, but like walk outside in the middle of August wearing all black and long, long sleeve, long pant clothing. It's like, that, that is not enjoyable at any means. It's, uh, look, ladies, I don't care what you say. Wearing, wearing shoes that make you have to walk like this. Why? I don't know why you do that. It's not enjoyable, okay? It doesn't make sense. We dress the way we dress to be liked by other people. Sometimes we talk the way we talk to be liked by other people. Sometimes we interest ourselves in certain hobbies and certain things because we want to be part of a group. There's no quicker way for a teenager to be depressed than be rejected by a group of people. Everybody wants to be welcomed. Everybody wants to feel like they belong. And so we so often are willing to say things and do things and buy things that will make us welcomed by this group that we value so much. But the Christian life is not spent pleasing other people. It's spent pleasing God. It is spent not with the interest of looking good in others' eyes, but looking good only in God's eyes. Following Jesus and seeking God's approval will mean certain relational sacrifices for you. One of the most difficult realities, I'm just going to list a few. One of the most difficult realities of becoming a Christian is not just that you will be, need to leave a certain lifestyle behind you, it means that you may need to leave certain people behind you. That's hard. Because keeping a relationship with them, at least in this moment and in this time, will lead you back into sin. They tempt you to sin. The only thing that you ever used to do with them is sinful things. That you have said, I'm following Jesus now. I'm not doing that anymore. And so you can't can't spend time with them. You've got to walk away from that. And you want to know something? They're not going to like that. One of my favorite testimonies I've heard of a a young lady who lives in Scotland. Her name is Tasha, and so Mercy Hill has partnered with this ministry called 20 Schemes um, that in July we're going to be taking a mission trip to go and, and spend some time with one of their church planters, and one of the first converts of this ministry, her name is Tasha, And you can find her testimony on YouTube, or maybe we can post it later on our Facebook or something like that. But um, her testimony, she talks about how she would, since the time she was 13 all the way into her mid-20s, all she would do is binge drink with her friends. From the time she was 13. So she would do that, but when she became a Christian, she knew that she couldn't hang out with them anymore. And even though she did try to reach out to them, it actually was a lot easier to not hang out with them anymore because she didn't have to tell them anything. They actually didn't want to hang out with her. They refused to hang out with her because she they knew she'd adopted this new lifestyle of following Christ. And so they said to themselves, you think you're better than me. And so I'm not going to hang out with you. I'm not going to be your friend anymore. And that's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter when he's sharing with these disciples that are following Christ, that are enduring the suffering, First Peter says that they will rebuke you, they will malign you, they will make fun of you simply for not indulging in the same sins that they do. The world will hate you because you are seeking a life of holiness, of looking more like Christ. And they will look at you and they say, Well, here comes Mr. Holier-than-thou it's not because you're being prideful. It's not because you're saying rude things to them. It's simply because they have a hard heart that hates the Lord. But you will also not be hated for the way that you live your life. You will be hated for the things that you say are true. Nobody likes hearing that what they believe is false. And if you're going to make a statement in your life that says that something is true, like the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and He calls all men everywhere to repentance... Not everybody's going to like that message. But if you're going to be a follower of Christ, that's what you're called to do. And so you are blessed when you are hated by men on account of the Son of Man. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know this, it hated me first. But this last beatitude, and this is how we're going to wrap this up, this last beatitude is unique. It's got something different in it that isn't in the other ones. This is the only beatitude that has a command in it. It has something for you to do. Something for you to apply. In verse 23, Jesus says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Rejoice that day and leap for joy. I don't know if it's a coincidence that this story is included in the book of Acts, but you know the, the guy that wrote this book, Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. It's a, It's like a sequel to this. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 5. It's just a few books over to your right. And in Acts chapter 5, this is when the disciples, they've received the Holy Spirit, and now they're living lives that are preaching the gospel to people, and there are people that are Believing in Christ and converting to follow him in droves by the thousands. And the disciples are arrested by this this council, by the authorities. And they're arrested and they said, stop doing this. But while they're in prison, an angel comes in the night and sets them free. And rather than go into hiding, they go back out and they start teaching again. And so they're arrested again. And then the authorities come out and they see see them in the temple and they're like, I thought we arrested these guys. And they go get the guards and the guards are like, yeah, you did, but we woke up in the morning and poof, they're gone. And so we arrested them again and they brought them in before the council and the council said, we told you to stop doing this. And they say something that is glorious in chapter five of the book of Acts, verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God. Rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. You have been called to follow Christ. And following Christ. He is calling you to obedience. And there are two ways for you to live. Obey God or obey men. Value the things of this world. Or value the things of the next. In verse 40 of chapter 5. The council ultimately decided that it was better to let them go. But before they let them go, they wanted to teach them a lesson, so they beat them. They beat them all and then they released them. And listen to what they did when they were persecuted. Verse 40 When they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. To follow Jesus for you means that you embrace a life that is spent Suffering. The life that's spent hungry, a life that goes without material possessions and wealth, and a life that is spent weeping, not because you think if you do these few things, God is ultimately going to make your life better in the end. Some of you might suffer until you die. That's okay, because you're not living for this life, you're living for the next. There are two ways for you to live. And the only kind of person that can rejoice when they are hated by others, the only kind of person that can rejoice in their poverty, in their hunger, and in their suffering is a person that has unwavering faith that there is a great reward waiting for them in heaven. That is the only kind of person that can do that. I want to close today with you in the book of Galatians. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want, though. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And Paul is talking about there is there's something different. We have changed who we are. And this is what he says in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That is what you are called to do. Follow me. Embrace a life of suffering. Embrace a life of poverty. Embrace a life of being hated by men because there will be a great reward waiting for you. You have two ways to live. You have a choice to make. Let's pray. Lord, we do come to you knowing our choice. Knowing what you are calling us to. You're calling us to suffer. You're calling us to give up everything, to be willing to put it all on the table and follow you. Lord, I pray you would protect us from temptation to think that we, we don't actually have that much to give up, that everything we have is necessity and we need it. Father, would you help us be content with what we have? Would you help us be content with where you've brought us what you've given to us, Lord. Would you provide for us? God, would you make us a church that is not only willing, but ready to make risks for your kingdom, Lord. To do things that this world says are foolish. Because we trust you. Because we live this life now in faith in the Son of God. Lord, would you help us have faith? Father, would you call us to do great things to change this world. And in the time, Lord, would you give us the boldness to step out and endure the suffering and endure the poverty that it takes to do that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.